0: Thank you, Christina. Merry Christmas, you guys. Good to see you. I'm not going to lie, it's really hard to follow all of that. It really is. So I, I recognize I'm not as cute, and uh, so it's fine. Um, but uh, we're in Isaiah 43 this morning. If you haven't yet, I'd love it if you opened your Bibles there. Um, we're walking through different passages in Isaiah for this season of Advent as a church, um, and uh, remembering that, first and foremost, Advent, All that simply means is the arrival of a significant person or event. And as Christians, we can't think of anything more significant that has ever arrived than Jesus Christ, the Son of God to this earth. And uh, a couple weeks ago, we looked at what Christmas means. It means that God is with us. And we kind of examined that a little bit. And uh, last week, we looked at he is God with us as a king, as a ruler. Um, And then today, guys, we're looking at how Isaiah shows us that God is with us as a savior. He's with us as a savior. Um, I'm guessing that here in like a week or so, uh, you're going to be opening up some gifts from some people that love you. Uh, Most of you will. And um, I'm certain, at least I'm hoping, that I'm going to open up a gift from my wife, okay? Um, She told me she's getting me something, so I'm going to open up a gift from my wife here in like a week, and um, I I was just trying to think this week, like, could you imagine if I opened up a gift for my wife this year, and there's a bunch of things inside of it. Um, You know, I open it up, and uh, let's just say there's a bunch of workout clothes in there. Uh, There's a gym membership. Uh, There's a Fitbit, Uh, just a huge, large head of broccoli, you know, Uh, maybe some Juice Plus or something. Uh, there's There's a book on dieting and another one on how to eat healthy, right? Um, That would communicate something to me, wouldn't it? Very clear, something very clearly to me. And uh, so there's a couple ways I could receive that gift, right? If I thought I looked awesome, if I thought that I was healthy, if I thought things were good for me, um, I would either think it's either a joke, right? Like, oh, this is silly, but then this is a kind of expensive joke, you know, why would you pull this joke on me, you know? Um, Or if I didn't view myself in need of any of these things, I might be offended, wouldn't I? Because this gift is communicating something to me. It's communicating that I am not healthy and I need some help. But if weeks leading up to Christmas, Liz is saying to me, you know, what do you want for Christmas? And I'm like, you know what? I'm just really unsatisfied uh, with my health, with my body, you know? I really want things to change. I need some help in order to do that. Then I would open up that gift and I would receive it very differently, wouldn't I? That would be a good gift. Uh, for some of you, like, maybe not, but for me, if, if that was my anticipation leading up to Christmas, what I was really hoping for, I wanted that sort of help, that'd be an awesome gift that I would receive. That would be a good gift, a, good, a gift of good news. Um, I think in a similar way, you guys, um, if you're a thing like me, you love Christmas. Christmas is uh, my favorite time of the year. I'm definitely a nostalgic kind of person. I love the culture of Christmas in many ways. But over the years, I've learned to slow down and uh, really try to take in the reality of what we're going to be talking about this morning. That in all actuality, Christmas means that our spiritual health was so bad that God himself had to come in order to remedy our situation. When we say Jesus or God is our savior, And he has come to save us. There are some of us that might just, that might roll off our back, like not a big deal. Uh, There are some of you that might find that offensive. But for those of us who realize our need, that's amazing news. And even this morning, I was thinking about this as we were talking about this, even as we were praying to come out here. um, we, We think about this every year. We think about this so often in the church. And we could say, God has come to save us And that sounds nice. We know that's true. It doesn't impact us in in our hearts in a deep sense oftentimes because we've lost our sense and our awareness of our need. Where would we be this morning if Christ had not come? See, God telling you that he has come to save you means that there's something wrong with you that you can't fix, that you can't solve. That, that if you could save yourself, then, then God definitely did not need to incarnate himself in the man of Jesus. He didn't need to walk in your shoes. And he definitely did not need to die. So guys, uh, Christmas this morning starts with us actually saying, I need help. I have issues I can't solve and no one else can solve. Christmas begins with us saying, I am in need. I am not sufficient. Christmas begins with this posture and we must begin here this morning. I'm so uh, convicted of this. Our passage today in Isaiah 43, it has incredible, unbelievable, cry tears of joy type stuff in it, but it doesn't carry that weight if we don't sit here this morning and realize I need a savior, like I need one. I need a hero in my life. So if we don't, then, then we, can't, um, we, we can't receive this in the way that we're supposed to. Um, if God is with us as our Savior, guys, this means something to you then. And that's what verses 1 through 7 are trying to show you. That if, if, if you need God to save you and God has come to save you, then these verses here in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1 through 7, uh, this is telling you this, these, these truths will carry you through life with an extensive joy. A joy that um, Trenton and Bobby just talked about. And so uh, this will be on the screen for us this morning. Uh, I want us to ask the simple question, what does God with us as Savior mean for our lives? And verses 1 through 7 actually answer this. This is what it means for you right now today. Not just a past tense thing, but an active thing right now. That you, this morning, you belong to God. Uh, secondly, that God's past actions uh, are like an anchor to determine his present and future actions with you. And then thirdly, that God sees you very differently than you see yourself most likely. Uh, it's, it's important just to point out, if you know anything um, about genre and um, scripture, especially that this is a, a chiasm. Verses one through seven are a chiasm. So what this means is basically the beginning and the end are saying the same thing. Uh, the two middle parts uh, are saying the same thing. And then right in the middle is kind of the main thrust of what's trying to be spoken of over you. And so that's why uh, we can't just go verse by verse through this. I would end up repeating myself, and you'd be bored by that. So um, first of all, you belong to God. And we see this in verse 1a and verse 7. It says this, but now, says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine." And then in verse seven, uh, we see the same language. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So God reminds these people, Israel here, that he's made them, he's made them physically, but here he's even referring to how he's made them into a nation. He's made them into a nation. They weren't a people, now they're a people. Uh, So here's the reality, guys. No matter who you are this morning... No matter where you're at, no matter what you believe, uh, you belong to God. And you don't have to believe it. Uh, I'm certain some of you don't. And I'm, I'm glad you're here. Honest, I'm very glad you're here. But uh, it's just true. You belong to God. Uh, these words pop off the page to us, not as exclusive to some people, but inclusive to all. God made you. God formed you. He created you, it says, for his glory. He created you in order to reflect to the world his character and his nature. Guys, you're not a mistake. You are intentionally designed with purpose and care and love by the one true God. He knows everything about you, and our lives are meant to resemble the beauty of his nature. That's what it means to be created for his glory, to, to glorify him, to resemble his likeness, his nature, who he is. So we all belong to God in this way, that he is our maker. That's what it says. But notice what it says next. He goes on, and it says something that isn't inclusive. In fact, it's really exclusive. The invitation is available to everybody, though, but still, it's exclusive. He says, what? I have redeemed you. I have redeemed you. Who's he speaking about? Israel. He's speaking about Israel. He then refers to his actions and history and he provides this imagery of delivering them from Egypt. That's what you should be thinking about if you've read the earlier part of your Bible when you read a passage like this. There's all this imagery of water. There's, there's the mention of Egypt, actually. He's redeemed them from their slavery in Egypt. So we're meant to understand that God is referring to actually redeeming his people from slavery. Well, then, do you and I read this this morning and we're like, oh, this is just kind of a history lesson. It doesn't really matter for our lives. Good for Israel, right? Well, not at all. Isaiah here starts with just referring to Jacob and Israel, but then where does it end up? Verse 7, it ends with all who are called by my name, anyone who's called by my name, whom I have created for my glory. It's all who are gods. It's, it's not just Israel. To be gods, you don't have to be a part of the nation of Israel. You don't have to become uh, Jewish somehow. You, you, you must be adopted, though, into the family of God. You don't have to bear the citizenship or belong to a physical country, but you must bear the name of Jesus. And we do that through placing our faith in him. So think about this really quick. These verses are telling us two different things, but they're the same thing. But they're telling us two things. Number one, God made you. Therefore, you belong to God. No matter who you are, God made you. He's your creator. You belong to him. But secondly, God redeemed you. He ransomed you. He paid for you. You belong to God. You doubly belong to God. Do you see that? You doubly belong to him. God made you for his glory. We decided to live for our own glory. We rebelled against his good design. What did God do? He redeemed you. He ransomed you. It's what it says, he purchased you to be his again. That's what it means for God to be your savior. You doubly belong to him. Um. Uh, There's a famous uh, thing that happened in the world here in the last couple of months if you're aware of it, Um, but uh, the artist famously known as Banksy, no one's ever met him, he's very elusive, no one's ever seen him, Um, but he uh, had his legendary work, Girl with a Balloon, it should be on the screen here, uh, sold uh, over in London in the famous Sotheby's, which is a very uh, famous uh, gallery, it was sold for 1.2 million dollars, okay? So he he made this. He designed this paint. uh, He painted it. He designed this, and right when auction closed, when things shut down, he designed uh, this painting to actually be destroyed. So it went through a shredder right when the auction closed. And the person who bought it for one point two million dollars now, the painting was destroyed. And so now people are debating it's worth more or whatever. But nonetheless, uh, they bought it. Right, Banksy created it. Someone else bought it. It was in their possession. It was destroyed. Uh, there's another famous artist, he's no longer with us. His name was Armand, he's French. Um, and he died in 2005 at the age of 76. Okay? And uh, during the later part of his life, he had enough money that he began to go around and actually purchase back some of his work. He wanted to have some work that would represent uh, different work from different decades that he did, and so famously, um, there's one up here, uh, this is a work that he did, and this is called um, Home Sweet Home Number Two. And just in the same way, this was up at auction, the famous Softspees in London. In the year 2000, he waltzes in. This work of art was originally purchased for $6,000 45 years before. And this artist who made this and designed it, he walks in this room, and he doesn't spend $6,000 in order to get it back. He spends $326,530 to get a work of art that he made back in his possession. See, when you and I were designed by God and we rebelled against him, God didn't just destroy us when we ran. He did what Isaiah 43 is telling you he did. He did what Armand did. He made you. And then when you ran and tried to live for your own glory, he bought you again with his own money, and it cost him infinitely more uh, to get you back. $326,000 is nothing in comparison to what it costs God to get you back to him, to, to cause you to belong to him again. He doubly owns you. This is what this is telling you. Do you see what this does if you really believe it? If you believe this morning, if you claim Christ And I say, Jesus came to be with us as a savior. And you believe that this morning. You you believe God doubly owns you. That's what you're believing. But do you you realize how secure that makes you? That'll make you so secure in this life. You don't have to search around trying to discover who you are. You have to go search somebody out trying to belong somewhere or belong to somebody. right, no more searching to do that. You belong to God right now. Like today, you belong to him. That's what this is telling you. If this is true, then there's somebody, guys, that, that owns you. You don't own yourself. And that might sound very oppressive to some of you. But you must realize that somebody who, if you don't, think, if you don't want God to own you, somebody does. This morning, for those of us who, who know that we're in need, we find this to actually be the true path to our security and our value and our purpose. But secondly, guys, our passage shows us that God is with us as a Savior, and therefore, if he has rescued you, then that casts out your fear, and it gets you through the hardest parts of life. Uh, Look with me again in verses 1 and 2, and then down in verses 5 through 6. What does he say? Fear not, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Uh, There's only one command here in these seven verses. And uh, the command is given two times. It's just two words. Now, uh, just think about it. These verses are richly loaded with amazing stuff that's telling you what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do. God's doing a lot of stuff in these verses, but you only have to do one thing, and it's told, it's told to you twice. What is it? What is it? Fear not. Fear not. Don't fear. I'll admit, uh, if, you, if you woke me up in the middle of the night, uh, I'm not one of those people that wakes up and is really calm and sweet like my wife. Um, I'm kind of Mr. Grumpy Pants, all right? I'm just not going to lie, okay? Um, first of all, hopefully uh, you'll never come in and wake me up. That'd be weird. Um, there are only a handful of people that get to do that. Those are my kids. Two of them were just up here on the stage, right? They often come in and they say, "Uh, I'm afraid. Dad, I'm afraid. They wake me up and I go, hey, why are you afraid? And they might say, well, I don't know. Or um, I had a bad dream. Or I hear somebody, I think somebody's in the house, you know, or there's a monster in my closet. I even get that one still, you know. And uh, you know what I say sometimes when I'm tired and grumpy? I say, you're fine. Just don't be, just don't be afraid. Go back to bed, you know. I, I basically just tell them, stop it. Just stop being afraid. Go back to sleep. You're fine, right? And uh, those aren't my better nights. Um, but you know what I say on my better nights? How I combat their fear. I say uh, it's okay. You know, don't be afraid. Uh, Daddy's here. Daddy's here. Which uh, someday they'll realize that's not much. Okay. Um, that didn't. <laughs> well, someday they'll realize that's not soothing at all. Um, I'm not a very strong and intimidating person. Um, You know, I'm no Dan Russell, like if my dad was Dan, you know, I'd I'd have something to say about, but nonetheless, I'm no Dan, Um, but I'll comfort them by saying, you know, don't be afraid, I'm here, and we'll even go as far as to say, uh, Jesus is with us, and I always recite this verse that we taught them. It says, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you, and then we pray. This is how we comfort our kids when they're afraid. Let me ask you, why does God say, fear not? Fear not. Why does he tell you not to fear? He doesn't say that's stupid. He doesn't say stop it. He doesn't say don't fear like in some vacuum. He gives you a reason to not fear, and it's the most legitimate reason to have no fear. But you, but you need to hear it all the time because we forget it. He says what? Fear not because why? He tells you twice. I'm with you, right? Fear not. I'm, I'm with you. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. Verse 5, fear not, for I am with you. And here's what he does. Like Like a lot of Isaiah, we are given these vivid images, images of water, rivers, fire, flames, which these images are general images that conjure up fear for us. That's what they're meant to do. They're meant to be vivid. And for Israel, it would actually remind them of the most vivid fear that they ever experienced when their ancestors were actually fleeing uh, from Egypt and they were escaping and the Egyptian army is running after them and they come up against the Red Sea and they have nowhere to go. They can't go around it and this enormous, the world's most powerful army is coming behind them and they're like, we're done. We're toast. Like This is the end of the road for us. Right, And so here they're panicking and their lives are over, yet God, what does he do in the story of Exodus? He powerfully parts the waters. They walk through on dry ground as the waters are towering over above them. Right? This is what we see here. But then these images here, they're reminding them of their ancestors, their experience in the Exodus story. But then he says again in, in verse five, fear not for I am with you. I will do what? I will call all my sons and daughters, he says here. I will gather everyone again. Remember that Israel and all of God's people, they're exiled, you guys, when this is being written to them. Babylon has come in, and they've scattered all over Asia Minor. They're their minority in the culture. They feel very much alone in what they believe and what they're after in life, and so they don't feel very powerful in number. In fact, their fear is very much tied into their sense of loneliness, and God says, you might feel alone, but you're not. I'm with you. I'm with you. And so the images here are vivid yet vaguely given because God is using the images to simply point to their circumstances. You see, no, no matter what it is that you're going through, is the whole point. Yes, you think of Egypt when you read this, but the point is he doesn't he doesn't talk to you about the Red Sea. The point is the images are there so that you and I could read this this morning and we go. No matter what is it that you're going through, this the stresses, the fears, whatever enemies you feel like you're up against, or Conflicts, or financial debt that you're facing, or, or maybe the loss of a loved one uh, this year, or maybe the hurt from a bad breakup. Whatever circumstances you face that create fear in your life, those circumstances they feel like water, like rivers, like fire, like flame. These are all images that, if you encounter them in life, you can't ignore them. They're so you're, they're so obviously there, and God says, "Do not fear." not because they're not dangerous or because they aren't scary, but why? Why does he say not fear? Because whatever it is that you're facing, you're not facing it alone. Uh, I mean, just this week I was reading, uh, again, just in my own time, like Matthew 14, and the famous uh, story where the disciples are out on the sea at night. And this is like before electricity, so completely dark, I imagine, and uh, there's a storm like a torrential storm, and there's being beaten about by the storm, by the wind and the waves and all this stuff. And what happens? You know the story? Jesus comes out to them, he walks on water. When he walks to them on water, Peter jumps out of the boat. He's got his eyes on Jesus. And as he's coming out to Jesus, what happens? The narrative in Matthew says that he looks and he sees the wind. But you can't see wind. The point is he looks around and he sees how awful his circumstances are that he's in. And he takes his eyes off Jesus, and he begins to sink. And what does Jesus do? He reaches out his hand, and he grabs Peter, and he drags him into the boat, and the, the winds stop. No, that's not what happens. He grabs Peter by the hand, and he says, Peter, while the storm is still going on, on the water, he grabs him by the hand, in the midst of the water, and the wind, and he says, Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? He confronts Peter in the midst of his torrential circumstances and then he pulls him into the boat and things calm down. Peter got his eyes off of Christ in that moment. See, these images are important here because God is reminding these people, he's reminding you this morning of how he has redeemed them, of how he has saved them in the past. He's, he's saying, I've saved you from Egypt, you walked through water, you followed me through the wilderness by a, a pillar of fire in the night when you didn't even know where you're going. I mean, talk about being afraid. He says, I saved you, and so if that's how I acted in the past, then no matter what you're facing, remember that. Remember how I have acted towards you. And lock your eyes onto me. I'll save you, and I always will. I mean, we've heard it said in psychology that the best predictor of the future is past behavior. You guys have heard that said before? The best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. Well, guys, if that's true, I mean, just think about how God's behavior will be towards you. I mean, you guys, if Jesus came to save and and he was willing to go through hell and back through his death on the cross for you and defeated your greatest enemy, sin and he conquered your greatest enemy, death, your greatest fear, death, if he did this in order for you to be with God, to belong to God, again, then don't you think that he is with you now and will come through in the end? I mean, whatever it is that you're facing, he's facing it with you and he will carry you through it. And all we have to do is look back to the first advent and look back to what Jesus did when he first came to this earth to know that whatever it is that I'm going through right now, if it's wind or water or fire, whatever it feels like, I'm not going through it alone. I mean, I think back to the first week of advent, we had Nate and Becca Ross get up here. And and they shared about the hope they had in Christ, how they, they sought to adopt a child for years. You guys remember, those of you who here remember them, their story. I mean, they had like a, a baby room all done up for their first child. They flew all the way to Florida. They had a name picked out. And the day they're supposed to receive their new child, the mom says, no, I'm, I'm keeping this baby. And they fly back on a plane empty-handed. I mean, they fought for years to be able to adopt a child and... And now, after, after some time, God gave them, they were able to finally adopt little Lila. You guys remember, you guys have known Lila, right? She's like the sweetest, cutest little thing that runs around here all the time, right? Just the, the most adorable little girl, right? The sweetest little girl. She is so, such a treasure to them. They went through so much to have a little girl like Lila. Could you imagine someday when Lila's going through maybe a bad breakup or a, a health crisis, you know, or going through some financial problems when she gets older or something. Do you think she'll be like, well, I don't know. I don't know if my mom and dad are actually going to help me in this kind of stuff. No, we would all go, Lila, do you see what they, went, what they went through in order to adopt you originally? Like, they love you. They adore you. We see how Nate and Becca treat her. Like, we know that for a fact. It's the same, it's the same idea here. God's saying, look what I did for you. I'm still with you. And I will do this. I will bring people from all over. I'm going to save. That's what I do. That's what he is. So this is what we ask. Whatever it is that we're going through, we ask this. We go, if God would sacrifice himself literally in order to ensure your destiny to be with him, if he did that in the past, do you really think he's going to waste his sacrifice and go back on his words regarding your future? Do you really think he's going to abandon you now? If he defeated your greatest enemy and preserved your life, don't you think that he'll be with you and preserve your life today in whatever it is that you're going through? That's what God with us as Savior holds out to us as a promise. Because Jesus is God with us as Savior. If he saved me in the past, in the way he saved me, I know he'll carry me through this, whatever this fear is. But lastly, we see in verses 3 through 4 that God sees you very differently than you see yourself if you're anything like me. What does it say? God announces who he is. I am the Lord, your God. I'm Yahweh, the covenant God, the Holy One. There's no one like me. I am perfectly pure and set apart. Your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Why? It gives you a reason Why? Why? Because, there's a because. Isn't there a because? Because, you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Let me just simply ask you, um, do you know that this morning? Like when you think Christmas God with me as a savior, do you know, is this what you know? Like, do you really know this? Do you know that you're honored by God? Do you know that you're precious to God? Do you hear the words uh, from the very lips of God? The simple words, but they just cut through, right? I love you. Uh, if you're anything like me, verse 4, man, it feels like the hardest thing in the world to believe. Why? Well, I know me. Uh, I don't feel worthy of honor. I don't feel very precious very often. I don't feel very worthy of love, right? But God doesn't say, Do you feel this way? If you feel this way, it's true. He just says, this is reality. Uh, You need to learn how to deal with it. I mean, how could how in the world could you be precious, honored, and loved? Why? How? Well, look at verses 1a and verse 7 again. God made you. He formed you. He created you for his glory. This is why you're precious to him. If you're anything like me, this verse sounds amazing and awesome, but impossible to believe that you're actually precious in God's eyes, right? This is precisely what Christmas, that God is with us as a Savior, it indicates to us. I mean, please hear me. I mean, some of you really need to hear this this morning. These aren't my words. I'm not making this up, right? These are God's words. You're reading them. I'm I'm not making this up, right? You are precious to God. You matter a great deal to God, and if that feels weird, I get it. If that makes you uncomfortable, you need to fight it, and then Be very clear, this is not some man-centered gospel if you're cringing right now because you're afraid of that. This is God-centered gospel stuff because God sent Jesus to save you because he created you for his glory. And if you're made as the crown of God's glory, which is what we're told in the Psalms, God saved you because you're precious to him. This is how this whole thing works. Um, Eden, uh, my daughter, she loves to play school. It's like her dream to basically be her second grade teacher right now. So she comes home, and she plays school. She just, like, locks herself away in these rooms. And she doesn't have adult things. She doesn't have school stuff. We don't have, like, toys for school. And so she, like, steals my stuff. And uh, I often find things that I'm like, hey, you can't, you can't play with that, you know? And the other day, I found a, a wallet of mine, an old wallet. There's never any money in there. Don't worry. I'm not worried about that. I uh, found an old wallet, but in there is my social security card. And I, you know, was like, hey, Eden, you got to you know, we had the same conversation we always do. You can't just take my stuff, you know, some of the stuff's important. This is really important, you know. To her, it's just a piece of paper with a name, some numbers on it. I mean, she could draw all over it. She could rip it up. She could use it as kindling for a fire or something like that if she really wanted to do something. It wouldn't matter to her at all, but I'm sitting there, I'm like, you have no idea. This is really important. This is really precious to me. To her, it didn't matter at all. She didn't see it that way. To me, it really was that way. I would treat that thing very differently. I should probably treat it better if she can just access it that easily. But nonetheless, like, I, 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 it matters more to me, doesn't it? That's how I see it. We see this thing very differently. How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself the way God sees you? If you're a believer, if you're, if you're in Christ, do you see yourself the way God sees you? See, here's the thing, guys. We all battle the, the feelings of condemnation, don't we? Those are the voices we most often hear we battle lies. And we're told that uh, Satan is the father of lies. And if Jesus has saved you, if you've given your life to Jesus, you guys, the greatest way that you are now tempted uh, by the evil one, the greatest way that you are now discouraged in life, the greatest way that the evil one can try and get at you is through lies. It, it's through not seeing God for who he is. It's, it's not seeing God as the the covenant-making God, the Holy One, your Savior. It's not seeing him as, as he really is in your life, and it's not seeing yourself the way that he sees you. So they go like this. The lies go like this. Are you sure God really saved you? I mean, I mean who would save you, right? Who would do that? I mean, you're like nothing. You really think God loves you? Why would God love you, right? Who would love you? You can barely love yourself, right? But this is where we must look at the words of God. We must look to the advent of Jesus. We must see Emmanuel, God with us as Savior. If he saved me, these words must penetrate my heart and they must do something to me. They're meant to do something to me. Uh, I remember when I was back in college and I was like really trying so hard to woo uh, my wife, which wasn't my wife then. I was trying to woo her. I was trying to first get her, convince her to go on a date with me. I was then trying to convince her to keep dating me. Uh, it took months for her to convince, just to claim me as her boyfriend, and then I tried so hard to get her to like, you know, say yes to me, and then finally, you know, marry me, whatever, she wasn't this resistant, but nonetheless, it's how it felt. You know, I, I, I've told stories, but man, I spent like so much money on flowers for her like every month, right? I spent all my money and energy just like planning dates, spending money on dates, taking her on dates, I wrote her so many, like, notes. I made up crossword puzzles, you guys. I wrote her a coloring, I made her a coloring book one time, right? I wrote her poems. I even wrote her, like, two haikus, right? I don't even know how to do a haiku. I had to, like, Google it, right? But I did all this stuff just trying to woo her. You looked at my life. You looked at my bank account. You looked at my energy and my time. Could you imagine, could you imagine if Liz was like, I don't, someone went up to Liz and they're like, I don't know. I don't know if you're that precious to Josh. I I just don't, I don't see it, you know? We would all go, that's ridiculous, right? Obviously, he's like obsessed with you. Like, maybe you should be concerned about it, you know? (laughs) Um, I don't know. I, I don't know if you're that precious to Josh. You would say, no, Liz, of course. Obviously, Josh loves you. Obviously, you're precious to him. Look at what he's doing. Look at all of his actions. Look at all of his energies. Look at all of his resources and how they're being spent. Here God says, I loved you. You were honored and precious. You don't believe me? I give people in exchange for you. Right? I gave Egypt to have you. And then he names these two obscure, far-off locations to basically signify, I'd give anyone for you. That's the point of listing these two locations that are really just out of nowhere. I'd give anyone for you, but do you see I mean, Christmas shows you that God didn't give a rival nation for you. That's what Christmas means. He didn't give your enemies for you. That's not who he gave in exchange for your life. He gave himself in exchange for you. The gospel is often called the great exchange, the most priceless, valuable, infinite life for the finite, undeserving, unworthy. The great exchange See, when the doubts creep in, you now look to Jesus, and you fight to see yourself through God's eyes. The battle, then, is now listening to the truth and blocking out the lies. I, I just recently finished uh, reading uh, The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe uh, to my kids at night, and uh, we're off on the horse and his boy, and it's way more boring, just going to be honest with you, okay? Um, but, um, Man, I read that book, and there were parts that just caused me to tear up. Um, I'm kind of, I can be sensitive. Okay, so I'm reading Narnia, and I'm getting a little emotional. But, man, there's one part where I was like, just trying not to ugly cry, basically. (laughs) And, um, man, uh, it's the part where um, Edmund is being accused by the witch of being a traitor. Uh, Because if you don't know the story, Edmund is the boy uh, who rats out his siblings. And he even turns on Aslan. And if you remember why, it's because he's promised all the Turkish delights he could ever have, which is basically C.S. Lewis' way of getting at the, the idea of pleasure and stomach and what we'll give up in order to have something. So he turns on his siblings, he turns on Aslan in order to have as much Turkish delights as he, he wants, but he's also promised power and authority and the ability to rule. And once he actually is a traitor, he finds out the witch was just lying. She was just using him. It was all empty promises. And so he comes and he talks to, and Aslan confronts him. And he talks to Aslan. And then there's this uh, famous scene where it's just him, Aslan, and the witch. And the witch uh, says that because of the rules of Narnia, a traitor deserves to die. She says the punishment was blood. And as she's accusing Edmund to Aslan, there's this really powerful scene where the three of them are just standing there. The traitor, Aslan, and the witch. This will be on the screen. Uh, You have a traitor there, Aslan, said the witch. Of course, everyone present knew that she meant Edmund. But Edmund had got past thinking about himself. After all he'd been through, and after the talk he'd had that morning with Aslan, he just went on looking at Aslan. It didn't seem to matter what the witch said. This is so powerful uh, because the witch was merely condemning Edmund. And Edmund decided that what the witch said, what even he thought about himself, he says he finally got past thinking about himself even, it didn't matter anymore. All that mattered was what Aslan said about him. All that mattered was, was how Aslan viewed him. That's what this says. And that actually began to dominate his life and it began to change Edmund's life. Edmund was precious to Aslan. Aslan loved Edmund and Aslan loved him so much that Aslan gave himself, actually, if you read the story, in exchange for Edmund. He gave his life so that Edmund, the traitor, could live. Aslan didn't give other people in exchange for Edmund. He gave himself and that's exactly, guys, that's exactly what Jesus came to do and exactly what he did. This is exactly why God was and is and will always be with us as Savior. He came to save, but he didn't save by giving other people in exchange for you. He saved you by giving himself in exchange for you. Do you see how crazy this is? In verse three, God announces himself as Yahweh, right? The covenant keeping God. He's always kept his side of the deal. He's always faithful. He announces himself as holy. He's the perfect one. He never acts in a way that that he shouldn't act, that, that he hasn't designed life to be. He's perfect, and so when the third title comes in, we are meant to feel a sense of amazement. Your Savior. What? How could the perfect, pure God who kept his end of the deal all along not give us what we deserve, but instead exchange his life for ours? How incredible is this? Why would he do this? Yes, for his glory. I mean, he formed you and created you for his glory, but since you're made to carry and reflect his glory tells you why, because he loves you. These words stare out to me every time I read them. I think we were even discussing this week, a uh, staff, is there any other place in the Old Testament where God just says, I love you, like this? Some of you just need to hear that this morning. God loves you. You're precious in his eyes. This is precisely what it says, isn't it? That's precisely what it means, too. Is that how you see yourself? See, Christmas proves to you that this is how God sees you. So, Jesus is either an offensive gift to the world, or he's maybe a joke, some of you. But this morning, if you're like, I need help, I got a problem I can't fix, then he's a hero. And if you sit here this morning and you have a humble posture that says, I'm in need, I'm not sufficient. I need somebody to come and do what I could never do. Then that story of Christmas will burst into your heart this morning in a way that when we sing these old carols, we don't just sing them for nostalgia purposes, we're singing them from our hearts because we can't believe it. Guys, Christmas is good news of great joy because God is with us as Savior. And if you've received him as your Savior, then you walk the streets of life this morning with the deepest security. I hope you see that. Because you know you belong to him. And you walk into your week knowing that no matter what is you're going through, he's going through it with you. And it's my deepest hope that you go about your days knowing how he sees you. You don't believe me just keep your eyes on Jesus, the one who was given in exchange for you. Don't minimize that. Don't minimize it. Father God, this morning I pray that your words uh, would, would penetrate our hearts, uh, would build us up, would encourage us, God, uh, to have just uh, an immense posture of worship towards you, God, as we respond to you, as we consider um, what your advent coming uh, actually means for us. Lord, for people maybe today who've never experienced you as savior, I pray that you'd show them their need for you and that they would place their faith in you, God. I pray you would do that. And God, for those of us maybe who've um, thought about you coming to save uh, for years and years, uh, Lord, that that would mean something to us that maybe it hasn't meant in a long time. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.